Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome everyone to episode 78 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Good. I just realised I got a new 1.5 litre drink bottle and I'm trialling it today. So let's see if we have to take any breaks. <laughs> but other than that, I'm good. I'm really testing my bladder <laughs> at this point, I think. That's pretty big, right? 1.5 litres? Yeah, I can see I'm holding that it up to my Skype yeah. for Sean and it's um, it's giant, yeah. It's like those, uh, have you seen those drink bottles some people have where it's a mini water cooler, you know, the water cooler, big water yeah. cooler, it's like a mini one of those? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they always look pretty tough. If I was to get a drink bottle, I would get one of those. I'll get you one for Christmas. Thanks. <laughs> uh, we got some Patreon shout outs. Yes, we do. Thank you so much and welcome to Lou, Sarah, Bianca, Corey and Jess. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we are discussing today contains graphic descriptions and involves crimes against young children. Some of the content is of a sexual nature and is difficult to hear. We'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. We'd heard, first of all, that it was a, it was possibly a Sorbolin cream, um, which is a fairly common sort of hand cream. Uh, so, as I said before, we characterised the chemically characterised this particular body lotion and uh, compared it with with the eighty or so body lotions in our, our library. If you drive north from Perth along the Brand Highway, you'll hit Geraldton, a city with a bustling lobster fishing industry and a small town vibe where the locals know each other. Just before you reach Geraldton, some 20 kilometres south, there's a sleepy little hamlet called Greneff. It's a small place steeped in history, being one of the first European settlements in the area. Greenwich's streetscape is flanked by limestone buildings from the mid-19th century, and one of the most well-known features of the region are the flats, which host windswept trees, some bent at 90 degrees from the strong winds off the coast. The region was originally home to the Yamachi people, but by the early 1900s, the town, which was built on a floodplain, had a small population of a few hundred residents. One of those residents was 31-year-old Karen McKenzie, who had moved into the area to make a home for her and her young family. Karen had moved into a big, rambling, yellow weatherboard place with a tin roof. It was fairly run down to all appearances, but she had plans to do it up. Karen was a very vibrant person, intelligent, she loved music, Janis Joplin being a favourite, and she loved being outdoors and connecting with nature. Karen had a younger sister and two brothers. 
She was very close with her sister, Evelyn, who felt that they'd had an unstable upbringing, with both alcohol and sexual abuse occurring within the home. As a result, Evelyn felt Karen protected her and they formed a two-girls-against-the-world kind of bond. When Karen was 15, she fell pregnant and had a baby boy who she named Daniel. She moved out of home, got a place, and gave it a go raising him on her own. But she found it hard at this young age to keep things together and give Daniel the life she wanted for him. So Karen asked Barbara, her mother, if she'd take Daniel, which she did. Daniel grew up with his grandmother until he was 16 and spent a lot of time with his Aunt Evelyn during this time. Karen, meanwhile, had a few relationships that didn't pan out and began taking recreational drugs on occasion. When she was 24, she met a man named Andrew Allen. They had two girls together named Amara and Katrina. But things between them didn't work out in the long run and they went their separate ways. By 1993, Amara was seven and Katrina five. Karen had turned 31 and got this place in Greenwich, which she could barely afford, but she wanted to make a good home for her kids. Although still mixing in circles where recreational drug taking was prevalent, Karen adored her kids and was doing her best. She lacked confidence, but her family was clearly very important to her and she wanted to make the best for them. Amara was attending the local primary school and the local high school was soon to receive a new enrolment application, and that was from Daniel, Karen's son. He was now 16 and had been saving some money so he could travel over to Western Australia to be with his mum and younger sisters. Karen was pretty excited at the prospect of Daniel coming back to live with her and the girls. Daniel was described as a kind-hearted ratbag, a typical teenager, not inclined to academia, but he was keen to give things a crack in WA and was, generally speaking, a bright kid. So family life was looking good for Karen at this time. Her love life, however, wasn't that flash. She'd recently ended a serious relationship with a guy named Shane Easto. In February of 1993, Karen had bought Shane some flowers for Valentine's Day. She'd sent these to him with a poem, which effectively ended things. Shane wasn't sure why, and Karen hadn't signed the note, but it was pretty clear from her side with the message she'd written, things were over between them. At the end of the week, Friday the 19th of February 1993, Karen was heading out to a party in Geraldton. This was at a private residence and probably more accurately described as a gathering of a few people than a party. Daniel was home minding the girls while Karen attended the gathering. She stayed until around 5am before getting a lift home with her friend Bill Mitchell. Bill left later that morning and the weekend went by without incident for the Mackenzie family. When Sunday night rolled around, the young girls, Amara and Katrina, went to bed and Karen and Daniel stayed up. Karen eventually fell asleep watching TV, leaving Daniel awake on his own. Being 16 and capable of staying up all hours, he did just that. But then around 3am, Daniel saw some car lights coming down their driveway. It was quite a long driveway and their house was somewhat remote. As the car drew closer, Daniel turned on the kitchen light and headed out front to see who it was at this ungodly hour. The family dogs were barking at the back, attuned to the strange hour the person was visiting. Daniel walked down the driveway to see the driver who got out of the car, but he'd left the headlights on, so Daniel couldn't clearly see who it was. It was too bright. The man was at least a foot shorter than the six foot four Daniel. 
The smaller man walked up to Daniel, carrying a tomahawk in his hand, and attacked the 16-year-old viciously, swinging the small axe over and over again until Daniel fell to the ground and stopped moving. He continued hitting the young man several times until he was sure Daniel was dead. The man then went inside the house and spotted Karen asleep on the lounge room floor. He positioned himself standing over Karen and repeatedly brought the tomahawk down into her head. Karen's body went into spasm and the man continued hacking at her until she was no longer moving. He then left Karen lying half naked in a pool of her own blood and went into her bedroom where he ransacked her drawers. He returned to the lounge room moments later with a bottle of hand lotion, after which he positioned Karen's lifeless body and used the lotion as lubricant while raping her. After finishing his attack, the man then covered Karen's head with a blanket and proceeded down the hall towards Amara and Katrina's rooms. The horrifying details of what this man did to the two young girls have never been made public, but suffice to say, the attacks followed a very similar pattern and the young girls were said to have died quite quickly. The crazed killer was completely covered in blood after this. He went to the bathroom and cleaned himself up, ensuring not to leave any obvious evidence behind before taking the tomahawk and hand lotion and driving away. It'd be mid-morning several hours later that another car came down the driveway and it was two of Karen's friends who arrived to lend a hand with some repairs around the house. When they arrived, they saw her body lying in the driveway. They thought it was Daniel and that he was perhaps playing a prank, but it was soon apparent that he wasn't. The male friend inspected the body a bit closer, urging his wife to remain in the car. As he looked closer, he wasn't even sure if it was Daniel due to the amount of damage he had sustained. The man then went to the back door where the Mackenzie's dogs were still barking and called out to Karen. He received no reply and with his wife growing more and more terrified of the car, decided to head back and leave the property and contact the police. The couple drove to a few neighbouring properties, but no one was home. They finally found someone at the nearby Pottery Museum and contacted the police. When detectives from the Geraldton CIB arrived, they saw Daniel's body lying in the driveway, clearly deceased, but they weren't sure where the family was or if the perpetrator was still present. Detective Merv Cousins was lead on the case and entered the home to see Karen in the lounge room covered by a blood-soaked blanket. Police then located the bodies of young Katrina and Amara in their rooms. The crime scene was described by many in attendance as the most horrific they had ever seen, and some of them were experienced homicide detectives. Some officers vomited at the site, and others would leave this line of police work, but the memories of what they all saw that day remained. It was clear to them all four victims in the Mackenzie family had been killed ferociously and many officers had kids of a similar age, making the whole scene very hard to digest and reason with. Evelyn, Karen's sister, was 27 by this time and she got a call from one of her brothers to say that he'd seen on the news a woman and her three kids had been killed in Greneff. She thought it probably wasn't Karen, but still called the home phone line well before mobiles here a number of times, but it just rang out. Evelyn called the police and her husband Graham began making inquiries too. And soon enough, it was Graham who received the devastating news with Evelyn watching as his eyes welled up upon receiving it. Evelyn had actually sold some horses they owned recently and was going to use the money to fund a trip to see Karen and the kids. 
Now, sadly, she'd be travelling to attend their funerals. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The small town of Greenwich was a sleepy place where not much happened. Now it was almost a horror movie, with an axe-wielding maniac on the loose. The entire area was swept by a wave of fear, citizens afraid to answer their doors, ultra-wary of anything even mildly unfamiliar. Meanwhile, the major crime squad in Perth were brought in to investigate, and with them, a swag of detectives to pursue leads. Forensic Officer Bryn Jones led the charge in the preservation of evidence at the scene, and of particular importance was recovering vulnerable evidence due to the weather conditions at the time. It was quite hot and windy, so there was potential for a lot of evidence to be affected or lost completely if police didn't act fast. Notable physical evidence discovered at the scene included shoe and tyre impressions and hair, and mass searches of both the house and broader property were undertaken by police and the SES within the following 48 hours. The media were also informed and a press conference was held, but again the details of the crimes were held back. While conducting forensic testing inside the house, police discovered what appeared to be a right-hand palm print. This was detected using a technique known as iodine fuming. The iodine is basically heated up and the fumes applied to the surface and these fumes react with a human's natural fat content, thus leaving behind a print of some kind. So the police photographed this print and actually cut it out of the wall to preserve the original evidence. Semen samples were obtained, however, with DNA a relatively new science at this time, the sample obtained wasn't enough to identify an offender. It was kept for elimination purposes, similar to the old blood grouping practice. Some fingertip prints were also found, but they weren't full prints and proved difficult to get a clear reading on and this was due to the door they'd been found on. It had been painted with quite a thick brush, so the brush strokes interfered with the prints. But even in 1993, police had software which they could digitally remove the strokes to get a clearer view of the prints. They next brought in an ultraviolet polylight, the beams of which would highlight different substances undetectable to the human eye. And what they found, where the main palm print had been located, was a greasy substance of some kind, So this too was sent off for further testing. And it was sent to a guy named John Challoner, a leading research chemist at the Western Australian Chemical Centre. Police had told him this greasy substance was possibly some kind of sorbeline cream, which are very common. John began his testing against 80 or so commercially available creams they had on file, and it was a close match to one hand lotion in particular, but not exact and the lotion used hadn't been located inside the house. 
So what John did was get in touch with the crime scene pathologist to request the swabs taken from the bodies, anal and vaginal specifically, because if the cream found on those matched the cream on the palm print, then it directly connected the print owner to the murders. John located a very small amount of cream on the swabs, and obviously it wasn't the only material present, so he had to get to work using a rather complicated chemical derivatization technique. It was going to take some time, but if it worked, it'd be groundbreaking for the era. The bodies of the Mackenzie family were then taken from the house and flown to Perth, where the post-mortems were conducted, and funerals thereafter, where family and friends attended an emotional service. A police task force was established to hunt for the killer and appeals were made to the public through the media for any information which might help them catch the perpetrator. The images in these appeals were quite moving. There was video footage of a Christmas wish list and a Mother's Day card Amara had made. The footage really hit home with a lot of people. It really highlighted the innocence of these young girls. Subsequently, police were swamped with tip-offs and leads as the public banded together to try and find the killer. Police believed from the get-go that whoever had done this had known the family. The house was simply too remote. It was a fairly long driveway, as we said. It just didn't make sense that this was random. So the first person they wanted to speak with was Andrew Allen, Karen's ex-partner and the father of the girls. They found him, but he was some distance away, up in Halls Creek, and he'd actually been there for some time. The roads were closed due to heavy rains, so Andrew had been unable to travel for a number of days, and as a result, had people who could attest to him being there when the murders occurred. Karen's ex-boyfriend, Shane Easto, was also spoken to. With their recent breakup, was it possible he had become bitter, maybe seen or heard Karen was with someone else? Then there was a man who we'll call Stan. He used to live at the Mackenzie family home and had actually called there on Sunday night. He had no solid alibi for the night of the murders and claimed to have just gone straight to bed after the call. Police also interviewed all of the guests at the party Karen attended on the Friday night prior, including her friend William Bill Mitchell, who had given her a lift home. He'd stayed at Karen's house for a few hours that morning, with neighbours confirming they saw his car leave around 11am. But he was a friend and had visited a number of times, so that wasn't unusual. What was unusual, police discovered, was that party guests reported Karen and Bill having an argument on the Friday night. It could have been a minor thing, but apparently Bill felt Karen was either ignoring him or had turned down an advance of his at some stage. Either way, they'd seemingly patched things up as he'd driven her home that morning. And finally, there was a strange report from neighbours about a couple of vehicles at the house on the Sunday and the suggestion of drugs being associated with this visit. Karen was known to mix in these circles, so police had to look into local drug connections and eliminate any possibilities. And most of the people associated with the drug scene in the broader region were more than happy to speak with police. No leads surfaced from that direction, but they continued to come in after police aired the case on Australia's Most Wanted. Police received further tip-offs about a fisherman Karen spoke to the day before the murders in Geraldton, and about another guy who had since gone to South Australia. Both turned out to be dead ends, but then police received a frantic call which had them thinking there might be another murder on their hands. And this call came from a guy we'll call Mark. He hosted the party on the Friday prior to the murders. It was his house and a number of friends attended. 
But now Mark called the police in a bit of a tiz, saying that his house had been broken into and there was a trail of blood across the floor. So police responded and went to Mark's house and when they got there, had a quick look around the place. And they found car keys and a wallet belonging to Bill Mitchell, Karen's friend who'd driven her home after the party. But Bill was nowhere to be seen. Had the murderer of the Mackenzie family tracked Bill down now and killed him, Maybe he'd seen the killer and they considered him a loose end. Then suddenly, Bill Mitchell burst into the house, completely naked except for a towel around his waist, and he was covered in blood, especially around his groin area. Bill, who was in a state of panic, told police that he had arrived at Mark's house when three men suddenly appeared out of the blue and dragged him inside. They told him that they knew Mark, the party host, had committed the Greneth murders and demanded to know where he was. Bill told the three madmen he didn't know. He was just popping over for a visit and Mark wasn't home. Then the three blokes took to his penis with a filleting knife and almost succeeded in severing it, but Bill managed to struggle free and lock himself in the bathroom. The three men left soon after and Bill headed outside to hide in the bushes, returning only when he saw the police had arrived. So police organised for Bill to attend the hospital and get himself looked at before questioning him further. It was a bizarre story, one that put Mark in the crosshairs, but they needed more detail and confirmation of these details to have any chance of finding these three madmen. But under more scrutinous questioning, things took a rather strange turn with Bill Mitchell. He admitted after a while that he'd made the whole story up and the injuries he'd sustained were actually self-inflicted. He'd tried to take his own life for personal reasons, he told police. It was a very strange occurrence, and with the time and resources police had wasted on this line of inquiry, they charged Bill Mitchell with providing a false statement. But this bizarre story was lining up with an earlier report they'd received from a caravan park owner named Bernie MacArthur. Bernie had called police after finding one of his on-site caravans spattered with blood and semen, and inside the room was a pornographic magazine which had been sliced up with a razor blade. Bernie called the police, thinking it highly unusual and potentially connected to what had happened in Greneth. Turns out it was Bill Mitchell who had made this mess, self-harming inside this caravan. It was clear to police that he was an unstable individual. Still, he was only one of around 25 persons of interest. There was nothing connecting him to the crime at this stage, and indeed he continued to show great concern for his friend Karen and her kids. Police were slowly eliminating suspects through traditional investigation, while the likes of chemist John Challoner worked away in identifying the oily palm print substance to see if it could connect to the swabs. They revisited the 25 persons of interest on their condensed list and requested these people provide another set of prints, specifically of their fingertips, as the one they'd found on the door were just the tips, not the full prints, and all 25 of these people provided these voluntarily. Forensic officer Bryn Jones was with Bill Mitchell at his workplace. He worked on a farm outside of town, and while taking his prints and conducting another interview with him, Bill made a strange comment. He said, I'm surprised you're still going with this investigation. I heard in the press you'd caught him acting strangely at some caravan park. The caravan park incident, which Bill may or may not have known had been connected to him, hadn't been made public. It wasn't in the press. Bill Mitchell was inserting himself right into the mix here, virtually naming himself as the killer. 
So that list of 25 had a shortened favourite now. The next step was confirming if these prints matched. Bryn spoke with Merv and they confirmed the door fingerprints matched to Bill Mitchell, as did the palm print. Those points on their own weren't damning. Bill was a semi-regular visitor at the house, which could innocently explain the prints. The key was the oily substance. Using cutting-edge techniques at the time, John Challoner had got an answer. The cream found on the prints was identical to the substance from the swabs. It definitively connected Bill Mitchell to the murders. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Bill was kept under surveillance for a few days as some internal police politics played out until they were eventually able to arrest him and bring him in for another interview. When police presented the fact that his prints had been connected to the hand lotion found on Karen's body, Bill Mitchell freely confessed to the murders. But even with his confession, they had to get the details. Bill had to run over with them at the scene exactly what happened. He explained that on the Sunday, the day after the Friday night, Saturday morning party had concluded, he was back at Mark's house and he'd been getting high all day, shooting up with amphetamines, smoking dope and drinking. By 2.30am on the Monday morning, he was in a drug-induced haze, brimming with rage, and he described driving out to Greniff, killing Daniel in the driveway, then proceeding into the house where he killed and sexually assaulted Karen, Amara and Katrina. Bryn Jones said Bill explained everything so calmly and in vivid detail, showing no remorse as he did, in the same fashion that a normal person would talk about washing their car. It was that clinical. He went on to detail how he'd driven back to Geraldton after the murder, thrown the tomahawk into the Greniff River and disposed of the lotion in a rubbish bin. Police divers later located the tomahawk in the river and it still had evidence on it, hairs from the victim. Bill conceded that he had gone there with the intention to kill the whole family, but he couldn't say why he wanted to do this. He remembered the whole thing in vivid detail, yet blamed his actions on the drug fueled stupor he was in. Police didn't believe that. Bill had also admitted that Karen had spurned his sexual advances, possibly at the party, but also once when they'd gotten home. He said that wasn't why he'd done what he had, but police thought otherwise. They believed he simply couldn't take being knocked back. If he was so influenced by the drugs, then how did he drive that distance, clean up and dispose of the evidence so thoroughly and recall everything in such clear detail? William Bill Mitchell grew up poor. He was often teased at school and generally lived an unhappy childhood on the poverty line. The Western Australian reported after the murders that his old clothes and dirtiness often made him a popular target for bullies. When he was 11 years old, his mother died and Bill went on to fall in with the wrong crowd and began abusing drugs. 
This was possibly a definitive turning point for a young Bill who had very few friends and rarely socialised. In September 1993, Bill was brought to the court in a protective police custody van. A mob of some 300 citizens gathered and yelled out in anger at the van as it arrived. Bill Mitchell pleaded guilty to four counts of willful murder, three of interfering with a dead body and a handful of other unrelated robbery charges. Justice Neville Owen said the crimes were so serious they defied description and indeed he placed the restrictions on detailing what happened to the two young girls in particular, which still stands to this day. He further rejected Bill's defence of the drug use and intoxication. The killings were premeditated and he'd been able to think and reason, which was clearly demonstrated by his actions. In October of 1993, Bill Mitchell was sentenced to 20 years life imprisonment, which of course meant by 2013, when he was just 44, Bill would be eligible to apply for parole. This caused a significant amount of angst within the community. The Crown subsequently appealed the sentence and won, meaning the life sentence was changed to mean the term of natural life. But then Bill Mitchell appealed this, and he won, with the decision reached that the initial sentence Judge Owen gave was correct, and it was impossible to know if he'd still be a danger to society in 20 years at that time. Bill Mitchell's barrister, Robert Lindsay, said that Bill didn't fall within the category of something like a serial killer, meaning he wasn't completely irredeemable. He said expert evidence found that if Bill was freed from his drug addiction, it was possible he wouldn't be a sexual or physical danger to the community in 20 years' time. While officers Merv Cousins, Bryn Jones and chemist John Challoner were rightly praised for their efforts in the investigation, there were many suffering long-term effects, officers with young families and kids at a similar age. Amidst petitions for the reinstatement of the death penalty, Karen's family were also grappling with their loss, the effects of which continue to this day. Karen's mum, Barbara, and sister Evelyn believe Bill Mitchell should never be released and they couldn't fathom why he had the last right to appeal. What about the family? They've been left footing the bill for their own welfare in the years after their loved one's murders, while Bill Mitchell has had taxpayers pay for his rehabilitation. And they've paid for this in more ways than just financially. Karen's diaries were discovered after her death, which detailed a lot about her recurring bouts of depression following her sexual abuse as a child. Evelyn's youngest daughter read some of this and formed a deep connection and empathy with her aunt in the years that followed. Sadly, four days after her 18th birthday and one week before the anniversary of the murders, Evelyn's daughter took her own life. The daily exhaustion, emotional burden and stress that Bill Mitchell may one day be paroled weighs heavily on Karen's remaining family. In 2010, Evelyn went to visit Bill Mitchell in jail after he agreed to see her. With the possibility of his parole in the years to come, Evelyn wanted to tell him who Karen was and what she meant to them. The now 45-year-old Bill Mitchell apologised and said he was a changed person, a model inmate. Evelyn said... His everyday appearance amazed me. You wouldn't imagine an average-looking person to have done what he did. He was looking down and breathing nervously. He instantly looked up when I thanked him. I looked him in the eye and said I wasn't there to ask him why, but to tell him who Karen was as we were growing up and how important she was to me. He has no reason to not appear as a changed person. People want to kill him for what he's done. He's protected. He has psychological assistance, food, 
clothing and opportunities to be educated. I told him as long as I've got breath left in my body, I'm going to do everything I can to keep him inside. My family and I are left with nothing. We struggle to make ends meet. Some people say he's done his time. Mitchell is young enough to start a relationship, father children and create a life for himself while my family has been stripped of one. Where is the justice for Karen and the kids? If he was of unsound mind at the time, how is it he could think to take an axe and dispose of it afterwards? How could he have made his way to Karen's isolated property? Would he have been able to testify in detail about what he did? More than 18,000 signatures were collected in an online change.org petition to keep Bill Mitchell behind bars. And so far, he's remained there, being refused parole every three years since when he's applied for it. Three years went by in the blink of an eye for Karen's family, and the stress it caused each time the possibility of him being released came up was significant. In 2018, the McGowan government introduced new legislation to Parliament, which delayed consideration of parole for mass murderers and serial killers to double that time, six years, meaning Karen's family have some reprieve from this possibility presenting itself until at least 2025. Our thoughts go out to them, friends of the Mackenzie family and all of those involved in the investigation, and of course, Karen, Daniel, Amara and Katrina. That's it from us on this case. I don't really have any thoughts, but I feel like we maybe just jump into our happy thoughts, Sean. Yeah, I think we kind of need a happy thought after that. It's a very uh, sad case, devastating. I think a lot of people know know this one, particularly for the reason of those sort of details uh, being withheld from the public, um, yeah. which is understandable in one way. In another way, it kind of leaves, the again, Karen's family with the the burden of having to know it all and, and I guess not being able to openly talk about it, whether that's something they want to do or not, I don't know. But um, uh, with, with what he did, it's kind of hard to imagine um, him ever getting released. But, uh, you know, time will tell. Let's think of something happier, shall we? <laughs> yes. Well, it looks like yours, I mean, no-brainer. Um, what's your happy thought this week? <laughs> I've just written burgers there and, uh, I mean, I love burgers. You know, we got a couple of good burger joints in the town where we <laughs> live, so that's always good getting one of those. But we just cooked our own last night. Oh. Uh, yeah, and, and it was just one of those ones where it all kind of came together and uh, it was just the right ingredients at the right <laughs> time, lovely burger and... <laughs> Yeah, that's my happy thought for this week. Pretty simple but effective. (laughs) Nice. Um, Well, mine is that I got a new tattoo yesterday. Um, It's one I've wanted for ages, which is the anatomically correct heart um, with some lyrics around it from one of my favourites, I think I've mentioned before, Dashboard Confessional. Shout out to all my emos. Um, (laughs) And also, you know, I got to see my favourite tattoo artist, Olivia, who I mentioned last time, I'm pretty sure I saw her. She's just the best sunshine person ever. Um, I just leave wanting to talk to her more. She's just the best. And last time, one of our listeners who know her kindly let her know that I said that she was so great. So if you're still there and still listening, let her know again (laughs) because she's the best. Um, But, yeah, that's pretty much it for me. Very good. And it looks great too. You were showing me, uh, albeit in a limited capacity over Skype, but, it uh, yeah, it looks good. Yeah, thanks. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, 
And you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link's in the show notes. And over there, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed, get ad-free and early release regular episodes, and a swag of bonus content too, which we'll be focusing on next week. So we'll be off on the main feed next week to do our second Patreon-only Urban Legends episode, which uh, everyone, everyone seemed to really enjoy the first one. So, yeah, that'll be fun. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you all next time. Bye. Welcome everyone to episode 78 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host. <laughs> I'm fucked that one up for a while. It's now because you officially don't give a fuck now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it just didn't make sense that this was random. So the f- That's your postie, is it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think I've mentioned before Dashboard Confessional. Shout out to all my emos. 